Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Boy, is it good to see you. My goodness. It is uh, so much tougher to be able to preach to an empty building, and that certainly is not the way that God had intended it. Uh, you might hear a rumor going around. I heard it for the first time this last week that I am no longer the pastor at Mercy Hill Church. Uh, I don't know if COVID got me or what happened. I don't know what happened in the midst of all of this, but uh, I heard that news this week and I thought it was interesting. But from all I know, I'm still here and, and you're here and it's so good to see you. And we want to welcome all those uh, by video as well uh, that are going to be watching online. When you hear the phrase, or when we hear the phrase, waiting on the Lord, one of the first things that probably come to our minds is waiting on God to work on our behalf. Uh, we live in a world of troubles and live lives of troubles and difficulties. Uh, the truth is that uh, many times there are family problems and relational difficulties and financial hardships and, and even physical sickness that goes on in the lives of believers. And sometimes, let's be honest, as much as we would like to correct our circumstances, we don't have the power to be able to do it. And so oftentimes in the midst of that, we'll call out for the mercy and the grace of God in prayer and say, God, change for us what we are enable and incapable of changing. And so when we ask that, we find ourselves in a state of waiting on the Lord. Now, in this passage in Luke chapter 2, we actually see two people that are actually said to be waiting on the Lord. It's a man by the name of Simeon and a woman by the name of Anna. But they're waiting in a different way than of which I just described. They are not waiting for God to change their temporal circumstances. They are waiting for God to change things eternally. They are literally waiting for the coming Savior of the world. They are waiting for the birth of Christ. In fact, in verse 26, we read that for Simeon, it had been revealed to him, chapter 2, verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's, the Lord's Christ. In other words, he was promised, hey, before you die, you are going to see the Savior with your own eyes. Now, we don't know when this promise was made. We don't know how old he was. We don't know how the Holy Spirit even did it. And we don't even know how long it had been since he had received the promise. All we know is this text teaches us that he is waiting and anticipating the coming of the Savior. The same is true for a woman by the name of Anna. The Bible says that she was well advanced in years. Politically correct way of saying she's really, really old, right? We've seen that. And so she's advanced in years. She's very old, but she too is eagerly awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ. She is, she is coming into the temple every single day, fasting and fa fasting in, and, and, pray, and, and praying each and every day, awaiting for him. Now, when we think of waiting, we often think of inactivity, right? We think of, of being idle. Uh, when I tell my kids, here, sit here and wait, what am I telling them to? I'm telling them to wait, but I'm telling them to do nothing. Just sit there. I don't want you getting up. I don't want you to walk around. I don't want you to talk. I don't want you to breathe. Okay, you can breathe, but nothing else, all right? We're waiting uh, on there, but what we see here is their waiting is anything but inactive. It's very, very active. Now, here's kind of the point where we want to focus on this morning. Just as these two were greatly anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ and his first coming, every believer of Jesus Christ thereafter ought to be looking in great anticipation to his return, to his second coming. 
We ought to be looking on pins and needles every day, thinking that today may be the day that Jesus Christ comes. The sad part is, is for many of us, we don't even think in those terms. There are days, weeks, and months that go by that we're not even thinking that this may be the day or the moment that Jesus, our King, actually returns and takes this upside-down upside world and turns it right side up. And, and so as the scriptures say, we too ought to be looking for his return, but it's not in a way that we are inactive, but rather active. And so what this passage teaches us is it teaches us three ways in which you and I should be actively waiting upon the return of King Jesus, all right? So here are three things. Number one, we must wait in faithfulness. We must wait in faithfulness. We actually pick up in verse 19. I'm just going to explain the text to you, uh, or excuse me, in verse 21. In verse 21, uh, we see Mary and Joseph, and when Jesus is eight days old, they do what was commanded by the law of Moses, and they have their son circumcised. And they also, according to tradition, they actually give him his official name, Jesus, on that day, just as it was instructed to them by the angel Gabriel. Now, when we get to verse 22, we see that it's, it's Jesus' fourth, 40th day birthday. And so what they do is they take him to the temple. And they take him to the temple for two reasons. Number one was to consecrate their firstborn child to the Lord, which was commanded in the law of Moses again in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2. And the second reason that they go was for the purpose of purification of Mary. When women had children, there was obviously blood involved in that process. And so the women would often be viewed as unclean and need to be purified 40 days after, after she would have that child. And so the way she would do this is she would come into the temple and she would make sacrifices unto God. She would sacrifice a lamb for as a burnt offering and, or a, or, um, and also a turtle dove or a pigeon that would be given for a sin offering. Now, according to Leviticus chapter 12, if she was poor, if the family was impoverished, which this family was, then at that point, they could give two turtle doves or two pigeons. So that's what's going on in the text. They're just seeking to be obedient to God. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst when they come to the temple, this is all a part of God's providential will unfolding right before us because this is how he brings all four of these major characters or five major characters together all at one time. See, while they are there, there is also uh, Simeon, and then there is also Anna, who are in the temple uh, with them. And so it's interesting because this is something that Luke does all the way through the book. He has a tendency to introduce new characters in the gospel in pairs. So remember, in the very beginning of the book, he introduced John the Baptist with the introduction of Christ, and then Mary with Martha, and now Simeon with Anna. And so he does this, and it's interesting because this isn't actually a couple. Uh, we don't even know if they know each other. They're probably different in many different ways, different backgrounds, different history, different families. But they're similar in one aspect, and that is that they are waiting for the coming of the Savior, and they are doing it faithfully. See, one of the things about uh, um, uh, Simeon is that oftentimes we think of him as this really, really old guy. But the truth of the matter is that the word of God just doesn't tell us what his age is. In fact, it doesn't give us any physical description of him at all, but it does define and describe him spiritually. The word of God says that he was, he was righteous and he was devout. 
The word righteous means that he was, he was kind and he showed compassion to those who were around him. In action, he would, he would take care of others who were in need. The word devout means, speaking of his relationship specifically to God, that he was constantly seeking to obey God in any manner of his commands. Well, when you take these two things together, obedience to God and love for God and love for others, what do you have? You have the fulfillment of the law. Do you remember when Jesus, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the laws? And he said, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why did he do that? He was summing up the first four commands of the Ten Commandments of the Decalogue. And then what does he do? And he says, the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What was he doing? He was summing up the last six commands that has to do with our horizontal relationships with one another. So when you look at this guy and you understand that he was both righteous and devout, that equals a faithful man. He was faithful to love others, and he was faithful to love God. In other words, I think the idea is he was faithful in every area of his life, not only in his life unto God, but his, faith, his relationship with those who were around him. Now, we see that Anna is also faithful, but her faithfulness is described differently, not so much in every area, even though I believe she was, but rather in every stage of life. Here, here he begins to unfold, and there's no reason to explain this except he's trying to drive home a point. He lets us know that she was a virgin when she got married when she was very young. She was then married. Uh, she was actually married for only seven years, seven short years she was married, and, and then her husband died. And then the Bible tells us that she was actually, a, a, a for 84 years, she was actually um, Single. She was by herself. She was ministering. She was actually a prophetess unto God. She was being faithful to speak the word of God to other people. Now, it says that she was 84 years of age, but some of her earliest uh, uh, writings really tell us that she was probably single for 84 years. The idea is in every stage of life, she has been faithful unto God. She was pure as a young lady. She was faithful as a wife during those seven years of marriage. And now she's been completely dedicated to God for the last 84 years. So we see this picture. Christ is about to come. They are anticipating. And how do they wait for him? An absolute faithfulness to God in every area of their life, in every stage of life. Well, how about you? Are you eagerly anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ? Now, I say that. And the truth of the matter is age probably plays a part in this, right? We've got little kids like, no, bro, not yet. I got a game coming up or hopefully a game coming up if it's not canceled. You know, there's like, hey, I want to get a car. I don't even have my driver's license, right? And some of us are, are maybe a little bit further than that. The older you get, the more you're kind of like, no, I think I'm ready. I think this might be good uh, for Christ to come. I'm looking forward to his coming more and more and more. Every ache and pain and problem in, in the world that begins to happen. I, I understand that. But are you truly, do you even think of on a daily basis right now in the midst of I am and the way that I'm acting, the way that I'm living, the things that I'm taking part in, do I realize, realize that at any moment Jesus Christ could come right now? And are we seeking to be faithful in light of that knowledge, faithful in every area of our life? Now, I, I say that, and I'm not talking about perfection, None of us are perfect. We're going to fall in many ways. And at many times, we need the grace of God consistently for his forgiveness. But we also need his power to obey and to be faithful. And the truth, the truth is, some of you are sitting there going, and when I ask that question, are you being faithful in every area? Some of you are like, well, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. 
which we ought to. Even David, a man after God's own heart, said, search me, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. But for some of us, when I said, is there an area of unfaithfulness, the Holy Spirit was already working and instantly brought to your mind and my mind the exact area where we are not faithful. See, here's the danger for so many believers. I've met more than I can count who, for whatever reason, they have this idea thinking that if they were overly obedient in one particular area of their life, somehow that makes up for their disobedience in another area of their life. It kind of goes something like this. I'll meet a man and I say, how you doing in leading your family spiritually? Well, not very good, but man, I really provide for them financially. I'm at work all the time. I'm there and I'm working. There's not anything they need that I haven't provided for them. And I said, well, how about a present father who's teaching them the word of God? Well, I don't have that, but I have all these other things. Or it's like talking to somebody else in a church where you sit back and you go, hey, brother, how are you using your giftedness and your unique gifts that God has given you uh, to edify and build up the church? How are you doing that? Well, brother, uh, I give money. That's what I do. I, I give lots and lots of money. Well, that's great, and that's wonderful, and, and, and thank you so much for that. God wants to be Lord over your finances. You need to be faithful, and that's, that's great. We rejoice in that, but he wants all of you, not just a part of you, our, our, every single part for us committing to him, and this is, again, what we see in this man, but it's not only in every area. It's also that we need to be processing in every stage of life, and why is that so important? It's important because I think a lot of Christians make the mistake, and I've done it, a bunch of times, thinking that obedience is more possible at the next stage of life. Have you ever felt that? Not this one that I'm in, but another stage. So it kind of goes like this. It's hard to be faithful while single. You ever meet somebody that way? It's really hard to be single. It'd be much easier if I was married, said like a person who's never been married, right? And then it's, it's difficult to be faithful to God when married. It was much easier when I was single. It's difficult to be faithful to God when, when you're young and full of passion. Then you get much older and you say it's difficult to be faithful to God when old and full of pain. It always seems as though obedience is for another time, another place, another stage of life. And, and, and what God's saying is, whatever stage of life you are in, that is the place for you and I to be fully and completely faithful to God because he can come at any time. Amen? Amen? And so this is what he's leading us to do. For some, the choice of being faithful is always another stage of life. But while waiting for Christ to come again, we must be faithful in whatever area and stage of life he provides for us. So we see that as we're waiting, we must wait in faithfulness. But number two, we see that we must, oh, I forgot the illustration. No wonder you didn't get excited. You needed an illustration. Let me give you an illustration of this really quick. See, it's weird. You guys have thrown me off by being here. Uh, and so, so in, in the illustration, I'm like, I'm missing something. And then, oh, here it is. Uh, the illustration, my wife and I, uh, when we got married, uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, I'm envious sometimes of like, I hear people, they're like, yeah, where are you going? Oh, we're going to this obscure place in Africa for what? And I'm like, wow, that's a great thing. So where'd you guys go? North Carolina? 
You, you went to North Carolina for your honeymoon? Yeah, we went to North Carolina. Why? Because it was cheap. Somebody gave us a place to be able to stay for a couple nights. And that really is not fitting to us at all. Uh, we do not like cold, cold weather at all. Uh, there, was, there was snow up there and you could ski, but we were so broke, we couldn't even ski. We actually went to the ski mountain where they were skiing and we just watched people like this. This is what we did, right? And it was so cold and it was so miserable. Am I lying? No, I'm not lying. And so we're sitting there and, 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 and there's an ice storm that is about to come and we're going to get stuck there. Now, some people are like, oh, so romantic. No, not romantic. I don't want to get stuck. The day we knew we would need to leave is we ran out to open up the door and the doors were, were frozen shut. And so we were just like, back inside, back inside, back inside. So we went back inside. So we decided we're going to cut this short. We're going to go home. And, uh, and it was, I think, two or three days early, maybe two days early. So we actually headed back home and we're like, okay, what a relief. We're out of the cold. We get back home. And when we do, we see her mom's car parked there. And, and she's parked. And so we go up to my apartment. It's kind of upstairs. And we go up there and we surprise her. She's like, what are you doing? And we were like, well, what are you doing? She goes, well, I was just trying to clean up. Now understand, you'll understand this. I had all the guys from my wedding, a lot of them being single, who stayed in my apartment before we left. So it was in need of cleaning, yes? All right, and so she was there cleaning it up and she goes, oh, she goes, I can't believe you're here. I was gonna try to surprise you and you surprised me and now I'm so disappointed. And she felt so bad because she couldn't get it all done. And we just hugged her and loved on her and we couldn't believe that she was over there actually working and serving us and doing what she was doing. Here's what I know. For some of us, we're going to be surprised when Jesus Christ returns. And maybe we're in the midst of some work and we never got to finish it. Maybe there's a part of disappointment going, man, I wish I could have finished what it was that you had ultimately called me to do. But that embarrassment is a lot better than Christ showing up and you not being active and being faithful at all. Amen? So we've got to be faithful as we wait, faithful in every area, faithful in every stage. I'll remember the illustration next time. All right, number two, wait with peace. Wait with peace. Now we pick up here in verse 26, follow along with me if you will. It says, and he came in the spirit to the temple. And he's talking about, of course, Simeon here. And he says, and when the parents brought in the the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed him. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for your eyes have seen your salvation. Now, this is the last of five songs that we find in the beginning of the book of Luke that we've studied, that we've looked at that have to do with the birth of Christ. Each one of these stories that have been, or each one of these songs that have been written by by Martha, by Mary, by Zacharias, by the angels, and now by Simeon, all tell us something about Christ and tell us what it was that he was ultimately going to accomplish. But in the beginning of this particular hymn, he actually begins with a hymn of praise. He's praising God that God has been true to his promise. What promise? Of sending a savior. Now he's not talking about the promise that he had given in generations past, all the way back to uh, the book of Genesis chapter three with what we call the Proto-Evangelium, which is the promise that he would in fact send a savior. But what he's thanking God for is not only that, but his personal promise that the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not die before he laid eyes on the Savior. Well, when he lays eyes on the Savior, his response is this, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Again, this is, this is, just so that you know, this is why so many people think that he must be very old, because he seems really, really excited about expiring. 
He seems really excited about the thing. And let me just tell you, just kind of, I mentioned it before. I'm coming up on 50. I'll be 49 this month, coming up on 50. If I were to double my existence and add 13 years, I'm probably looking forward to the next step as well, right? So he, and the reason I say that is because some people believe he was 113 years of age according to church tradition. We don't know for sure or not. But the key here is, is notice this, is that I don't think that he is excited about death. I don't think he views death as a good thing. And I don't think any true believer in Jesus Christ should view death as a good thing. Why? Because it's not a blessing of God. It's the curse of God because of man's original sin towards God. So it's not something that we celebrate. It's something that we ultimately mourn. However, what's happening here is he's not rejoicing over death. He's just not afraid of death. Have you ever noticed how radically different uh, a lost world and believers in Jesus Christ respond to death? completely and utterly different, two completely different ways. For, but for unbelievers, they view it as what? They view it as, as final, as grievous, as hopeless. They view it as the ultimate tragedy. Nothing worse can happen to an individual for them to die in their life. Why? It's because of the way they live their life. Everything that is important, everything that is significant is right here on this earth. If it is lost here, then all is ultimately lost. It's why people live the life where they say, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. In other words, let's indulge yourself in as much physical sin as we possibly can and pleasure because we only have a short period really to enjoy all this and then absolutely nothing. But this is not the way that a Christian views death. In fact, the way that Simeon responds to it is he talks about it as departing. That's the word that he uses. And when we get to the New Testament, the Greek word for depart is used several times for death. And here's what it means. It means to release a release of a prisoner, to untie a ship and set sail, to take down a tent, and to unyoke a beast of burden. As Warren Wiersbe says, he says, God's people are not afraid of death because if it only frees us from the burdens of this life and leads us to the blessing of the next life. It's as Paul says, this is what Paul means when he says, to live is Christ. Say it with me. To live is Christ and die. And what? And to die is gain. That's right. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If you live for Christ, to obey him, to follow him, to know him, he is the apple of your eye in all that you do. It's why you raise up in the morning and it's what you're ultimately looking forward to. Then when you die, death is gained because you get all of what you were ultimately living for. Jesus is our just and full and good reward. And so what we find here is for Simeon, no matter how old he was, whether he was 13 or 113, he had no need to live a life of fear of death. Not at all. Why? Because he knew that he was in Christ. Now, why is this idea of, of waiting in peace so important? It's important because it will ultimately impact our faithfulness. Going back to faithfulness again, each one of these uh, build on each other. If all we are ever concerned about is preserving this life, then the chances of you and I being fully obedient to what God calls us to man is, to, to, to commanded us is highly unlikely. We will unlikely be radical to go and to give. Missions trips will be off the table because, because, I, because something might happen if I go. I might go there and I might catch a disease and I might die, which is really interesting to me because the last I checked, people who stay at home are getting diseases and they die. Agreed? 
all, all at some time. So you're either going to die in obedience or die in disobedience, one or the two. At the end, you just die, right? That's how, it, that's how this whole thing works. I can, I can oftentimes, uh, one, one author writes this. It says, it can be argued that a Christian who fears death does not understand the purpose of his life. Our temporary life is to be used to glorify God and not to bring ourselves comfort and security. As disciples of Christ, our lives should be dedicated to his service and glory. We must never place our personal well-being and safety ahead of the primary purpose uh, that, we have, that we have here on earth. We can only do that if we have a peace with death, right? That's the only way. One of the things that's so difficult is we encourage people, and this has been throughout all my life, when God's working in a couple's life and, and, and finally they sit there and they say, you know what, we need to be on the mission field. We need to go. And God doesn't call every person to go. We understand that, right? There are some that send, there are some who go. But when we see God really pulling at the strings of the heart of individuals and they go, we ought to rejoice. Now, one of the things that are really difficult for those couples is one is to get there and make that decision in the beginning. Very difficult decision to make. Why? Because they know the cost of what it's going to cost them to be able to go. The problem for them, though, is when they finally make that decision and yield to God, they have another problem to overcome. And that is usually their family and friends who are all Christians who tell them, what in the world are you doing? Why in the world are you going to do that? You're going somewhere where you're going to be in danger. You're putting your lives in danger. What are you going to do for retirement? How, how is any of this old me going to work? And yet that couple ends up going anyway. How are they able to do it? Because they understand that there is something more important and more valuable than life itself, the person of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is we see this idea of how do we wait on him? He's, he's coming at any moment. How do we do? We make sure that we are faithful. We live this life out in peace, knowing that I'm going to live as long as God wants me to live. Uh, my life won't be taken short, can't extend it at all. So I can take risks to do what it is that he's called me to do. And not because I'm not trying to just secure my own existence here because there's more to life than here. Uh, then what do we do? Then finally this, and this connects with it, is we wait on mission. We wait on mission. Now note this, uh, beginning Simeon and, and Anna um, here could have spent all of their time at this particular point in praise to God. This is what they had been waiting for. This is what they had been praying for and fasting for and been promised. Just, Lord, come. They could have just sat there for the rest of the time and just had a, a personal worship service all to themselves, but they understood that would not be right. That if Jesus Christ, that if this Savior was being sent to them, and then God has a bigger plan that they need to be a part of it. And we see that plan in verse 30. This is still, again, Simeon speaking. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now, just two weeks ago, I said that whenever Luke uses the term all the people, he's referring only to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. But when he uses the phrase itself, all peoples, he's referring to all the people in the world. And the way we know that is he clarifies it by the next line when he says, a light for revelation, for, for revelation to the Gentiles and glory and for glory to the people of Israel. Again, if God had a mission to save more people than just them, but people throughout the entire world, then certainly they need to do more than just personally rejoice that they've seen the Savior. They want to do all they can to make sure others see the Savior as well. 
And Anna especially understood this. Look at verse 38. And coming up at, the, at, at that very hour, this is when she's hearing this prophecy. She sees Jesus. She began to give thanks to God. There's the praise. And to speak to him to all who were waiting for the reputation or for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see what's happening here? She understands. She, she's praising God because she sees Jesus for who he is. But simultaneously, she cannot help but to help all people and to direct them to the Savior himself. She understood that it was bigger than just her. What, what, what an amazing, listen, here's the beauty, aspect of the beauty of the gospel. It is for all people. Isn't that refreshing in the world that we're living in right now? Uh, that is a refreshing word for me. Why? Because the world wants to draw as many lines and distinctions as it can between every segment of the population. The goal is to divide by color, ethnicity, socioeconomic backgrounds. By drawing so many lines and making so many distinctions, someone somewhere is going to get left out because they didn't live up or, make or meet the criteria. That is not the message of Jesus Christ. He is for all peoples. But even though he's for all peoples, it doesn't mean that all people are for him. Isn't that correct? This is what we read next. Look at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his, his mother Mary. Now get this. They are so blown away that their child is going to be the savior of the world. Would you? Right? I mean, we're excited when they make honor roll. All right? But this is the savior of the world. And so they're blown away. They, can't even, they marvel at this. They can't even get their minds around that this child is the savior of the world. And, and then at that particular point, Simeon calls the mother over. We would usually call this inappropriate, what he's about to say. Look what he says. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from, my, from many hearts may be revealed. He says to her, he says, your child is going to be the savior of the world. But you're say, but come here, I want to tell you something. But your son and what happens to your son is going to cause you great pain. In essence, there's going to be a sword that goes through him, but it's also going to, and when it does, it's going to go through your heart. But it's also going to pain you because there are going to be people in this world who love him, and there's going to be people in this world that absolutely hate him. He is going to be the very cause of the fall of many. Now, why is he going to be the cause of the fall of many? Well, the sign here, he says, the sign that he speaks of in this context is actually Jesus Christ. It's the opposition of Christ. He is God's sign, and not everyone, who, who, not everyone is going to accept him or to receive him. And the reason for this is because to them, Christ is a stumbling block. Here's why. He illuminates sin. He illuminates the wickedness of our hearts. He comes to us, and in his coming and having to die on the cross for us, reveals that you, nor me, nor anyone else is good enough to be accepted by God. That is the message that is so offensive. For you to tell somebody that somebody has to die in your place because at your very best, you have failed the mark of God and fallen short of the mark of God. A world just doesn't want to accept it. This is why the same message can be preached, but there's two different responses. I've been into a crowd where I go, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And you see somebody smile at you and go, amen, brother. Jesus is Lord and Savior. And I've been in a crowd where I said, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And I've had people say, get out of here. We don't have anything to do with this. 
There would be no name and no person in all of history that would divide as much as the person of Jesus Christ, even though he came to unify us by bringing salvation to all people. And so here, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will likewise persecute you. Look, if you, if you were told by Jesus, which you were, that what you should be doing with your time here on earth is to make his name great amongst the nations, that you should start with your neighbors and your friends and your family. That is what we ought to be busy doing right now. That's the idea of faithfulness before he comes. We are to be on mission for him. And we are willing even to be able to burn bridges all because we know that even though people will hate us and we don't want to be hated, we don't want to be hated at work or by our family or in our schools. We don't want any of that. But we understand the only way for them to come to faith in Jesus Christ and be born again is through hearing the message of, of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are worthy to be able to, or we are willing to be able to do so. So we share that gospel with others knowing that what we do is going to cause us to be hated by others. Now, how can we do that? How is that even possible? Just having the peace of God, knowing God, knowing that any moment he is going to return, and when he returns, I don't want to sit there and fall back and say, I was too afraid of other people to speak of your coming. I don't want to be there. That's not where I want to be. So how does this all look when you put it all together? It looks this way, I think. In 1727, there was a community, later known as the Moravians. Some of you are probably familiar with their stories, that started, and get this, an around-the-clock prayer watch that lasted for an unbroken 100 years. This group and community prayed, unbreaking, 24 hours a day, a different person at different times, for a period of 100 years. Did you all get that? We can't pray for 10 seconds. Never mind 100 years, right? And so they prayed for 100 years. In the very beginning of this movement, there was a, it, it, what's interesting, in the culmination at 65 years in 19, or 1792, finally their prayers were, were really fulfilled and seen with 300 missionaries going to unreached people groups from the West Indies, Greenland, Lapland, Turkey, and North America. But early on in their years of praying, the first five years of praying, that there was two young missionaries by the name of jo, uh, Johann Dobert and David Nitschmann. And they wanted to minister to the African slaves in the islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix in, in, in the Danish West Indies. And when they were told that they were not allowed to go, that it would be impossible, nobody would allow them in and access to these slaves, we're, we're told that both men sold themselves to a slave owner and boarded the ship bound for the West Indies. As the ship pulled away from the docks, it is said that they called out to their loved ones on shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. To me, this is a wonderful picture of what waiting on the Lord looks like when we wait for that return in faithfulness and peace and on mission. Look, I'm not saying that we're gonna sell ourselves as slaves to go and reach other slaves. Maybe God would call us to something like that, I don't know. But I do know this, in our own lives, we will, God, when, when Christ comes, we want to be found faithful. I just wanna encourage you right now that whatever area of your life 
that right now you're holding off on, you're not giving to God. Here's what happens sometimes. Sometimes we just are so tired of stumbling in the same area, we just turn our back on it and we give up. But yet Paul reminded us, he said, he said you have not come to the point of shedding blood in your resisting of sin. We continue the fight. We continue to, fight, to, 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 be, to give all things to him and submit to him as our Lord and King. We know that he's coming. For some of you, you sit there and you're so worried right now so worried about life, so worried about death, so worried, so consumed about all of these things. And I'm not for a second, for a second saying that we shouldn't be wise in what we do. Please, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is we can be wise in what we're doing, but yet not be paralyzed with fear because we understand that death is not the end. It's just the beginning. And for many of us, we sit back and say at the same time of mission, we have to be on mission. We can't allow us to be able to sit there and say, we're going to take six or seven months because of the COVID virus. And we're going to sit back and we're not going to share. You and I have got to be more wise than ever before and find out where God is working and making sure that every person that we're coming in contact to, that you and I are doing what? Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? He may return. He may return today. He may return tomorrow. He may return in 100 years. I have no idea. But you and I must live in light of his coming. We must wait upon the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you. We thank you this morning. I thank you for the time that we've had together. God, I just pray right now that we will. You will stir in us. You will stir in us the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It will stir in us and allow us to be able to see our lives, look, through the lenses of the word and through the lenses uh, of, uh, of the spirit, Lord, that we'll see those things. Even today will be a day of commitment. God, that we will be even assured today. Lord I, I, Lord, I have to believe that so many of us are so guilty of being so self-absorbed, so self-absorbed of what's going on in our life or what's not going on in our life that there's no possible way, there's no possible way that we can be living and waiting in light of your return. God, I pray that today there will be a shift in my life and the life of those at Mercy Hill. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Let's stand together, stand together. And I'm just gonna, I'll, I'll be down here in just a moment. If you wanna come and pray or talk, I'll be down there with you. Let's respond, let's respond.